Hey, everybody, it's Stuart Carlton, host of Teach Me About the Great Lakes and assistant director of Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And I swore to myself that I was not going to record a disclaimer this week, but this is the disclaimer. Uh, it's a relatively short one this time. Basically, I just wanted to say that we had a number of audio difficulties when we were recording this episode, most of which were my fault, some of which I believe were the fault of the uh, earthquakes that they just had in Utah, where our guest uh, lives. But uh, so I, I apologize for that. Uh, today's guest is a, a medical doctor, and we're going to talk some more about the idea of going outside during COVID-19 and social distancing, because uh, as an ER doc, our, our, as an ER doc, our guest has an interesting perspective to add, I think. And so I think this episode is a nice complement to the last one. Um, but with that, let me stop disclaiming and uh, start episoding. So end disclaimer, begin episode right now. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to Teach Me About the Great Lakes. This is our second bonus COVID-19 episode. Uh, it's becoming an increasingly common thing, unfortunately, as the virus is becoming increasingly common. And uh, with that <laughs> really hopeful introduction, my name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I am joined today, as always, by Hope Charters. Hope, how's it going? I'm doing well. I'm excited to ask about vulnerable populations because I am one of those people. And so um, hopefully our listeners will want to hear about that, too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I think it'd be really interesting to get his perspective. So our guest today is uh, an emergency room physician. He works in Utah and uh, he also has a background in epidemiology. And so he's out there on the front lines um, of both, uh, you know, the, the virus progression itself, but also on the front lines of like doing stuff outside because nobody moves to Utah except to do things outside. Nope, that's not true. But one great thing about living in Utah is that you get to do a lot of stuff outside. Uh, you know, I've been on uh, wonderful canoeing trips there and things like that. It's a beautiful state. Uh, so, yeah, with that, let's just go ahead and bring on Dr. Zadrovich. Our guest today is Dr. Frank Zadrovich. He's an emergency medicine resident physician and an epidemiologist, and he works in Utah. But he uh, received his MD at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and uh, he also got an MPH, a Master's of Public Health, at uh, Columbia. So he is very familiar with Great Lakes states. Uh, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So we're interested in um, talking through this idea of uh, COVID-19, a coronavirus in the outdoors. Uh, and I think that um, right now your position as an emergency medicine resident gives you a really unique perspective and a really important one. But first, I'm actually really just interested in that. Like, what is your job right now uh, as, a, as a resident? Like, are you dealing with coronavirus frequently, infrequently? What, is, what does that look like? We are. We're in an interesting position here in Utah from a spatial perspective. We tend to be a little separated from the rest of the country. And so I think what's happening in New York City, what's happening in Washington State and California is probably several steps ahead of where we are right now. We're very used to dealing with anything at any time in the emergency department. And I think that this has uh definitely increased um, our uh, our focus on being able to handle any uptick in cases, whether it's the things that we normally see, heart attacks, motor vehicle accidents, um, other injuries. We're hyper aware now, I think, of uh, the, the demand on our services at the moment. 
here in Utah, we have split our emergency department into a respiratory only emergency department, as well as the everything else. And so we're dual tracking patients as they check into the ED. Um, it's done two things for us. It's allowed us to monitor the providers who are dealing with the respiratory only patients to make sure that we're keeping ourselves safe and that no one's getting sick while also providing the same level of care that our patients who need us for general emergencies. Um, we're slowly seeing increases in cases here in Utah. We've likely been seeing wide community spread of the disease for some time here. But I think as people become more aware of their own symptoms, we're starting to see the majority of our patient volume shift towards respiratory and COVID cases. So you think even now you would say the majority of the people in the ER are COVID related or respiratory anyway? I would say it's probably evenly split here in Utah huh. right now, but we're slowly um, starting to see a majority of COVID patients. Speaking to some of my colleagues who are in New York City right now, I spoke with one yesterday Anecdotally, he shared with me that 80 to 90 percent of the patients he saw in the emergency yesterday were likely uh, COVID related. So very high proportion. Wow, that's that's stunning. So is, is the reason for that, is that because the the um, the symptoms are so bad or is it because people are worried and they want to go in because they can't get a test or they just, you know, want to uh, get sort of you, you go straight to the ER rather than, than elsewhere? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we are, I would say, a healthy proportion, maybe 30% are patients who are sick enough to need hospitalization or to need a higher level of care. So breathing machines, life support, etc. There is a, a percentage of those patients who are what we say the worried well, people who have symptoms that are limited to influenza-like or flu-like symptoms, cough, cold fevers, body aches, etc., who may or may not have COVID and are unsure of whether they meet the criteria for testing right now. Unfortunately, alongside all of this across the country, we're seeing um, a spike in flu cases alongside all of this. And so um, whether it's influenza or whether it's COVID itself, a lot of people are bringing themselves into the ED, even if they don't have severe symptoms. Is that the right move? Or are you suggesting that people kind of stay home until they get more severe symptoms? That's a great question. We're actually recommending that if people are not in a high risk group, so if they don't have um, another Ill, uh, another baseline illness like diabetes, high blood pressure, um, known lung disease like asthma, COPD, or if they're not in the elderly group, that if they're able to manage their symptoms at home, are not having severe shortness of breath or feeling like they need a higher level of care, we're asking those people to stay home. And that's for a few reasons. One, I would say the first reason is our ability to manage the volume of patients in the emergency department um, is slowly becoming more strained. The second thing is if any of us providers come down with a flu-like illness, even if it's not COVID, we're being asked to stay home and monitor ourselves for a week to two weeks. And so the more people that we're seeing that don't need to be in the emergency department, if they transmit a, uh, a flu-like illness to us, even if it's not COVID, we're knocking a decent number of providers out of the workforce. 
oh, right. So if you get something that could be COVID, you're kind of out of the game for treating people. And right now, maybe that's somewhat manageable. But but if, if the numbers in, in Utah, mm-hmm. uh, but if the numbers keep going up, that becomes a real problem. That's exactly correct. Oh, geez. Okay. And so that brings us to kind of the main uh, thing that I'm curious about, because there you are, you're experiencing, you know, ERs that are uh, uh, got a lot of traffic right now, and you're expecting it to be a lot more uh, in Utah, much less what it's like in New York right now. But we have listeners throughout the Great Lakes region, um, some of whom, like Indiana, is going to be starting tomorrow, as we record this, under shelter-in-place orders, some of whom are not, uh, but a lot of whom are trying to socially distance. Uh, but the challenge with social distancing is that it can be really isolating um, and it can drive you you know, bonkers, essentially. And so one potential solution for that that is ordinarily really healthy is going outside. And, and so we think that uh, as best as I can tell from talking with uh, um, other people, that going outside, if you stay socially distanced, you, know, you, you might not necessarily contract the, the, the virus. But do you think it's still a good idea to be doing that or what, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, if we touch base first on what social distancing is, it's deliberately increasing our physical space between people to avoid spreading illness. Uh, We say six to eight feet because this lessens your chances of catching anything that is transmitted with droplets, which COVID likely is. Um, And so staying six to eight feet away from a person without touching any of any shared surfaces, et cetera, is likely to decrease your risk of direct transmission. Um, So going outside, you're unlikely to directly either transmit or contract COVID um, by being on a trail or near a body of water next to someone. The concern is that uh, by going outside, doing these activities that Uh, we normally do from a wellness perspective is that we're either touching shared surfaces or interacting more closely with people in other ways that increases our risk. Whether this be um, going through gas stations and using shared pumps, um, going to bait shops or outdoor shops, other things where we're um, connected with people that would not otherwise be in our immediate social circle, i.e. our families, our um, significant others, uh, children, etc. And so the thought is that by giving people as strict of instructions as possible for social distancing, we decrease the deviations from, uh, from those recommendations. And the reason I say that is a lot of, um, a lot of us here in the States are not used to having these restrictions on our movements in place. And so it's, uh, I think a lot easier for us to develop cabin fever and want to get out and back to our normalcy as quickly as possible. And so if just one of us goes out and deviates from these restrictions, we think that, okay, maybe we are the exception. But once you develop a critical mass and everyone starts thinking that they're the exception, we see a snowball effect and essentially um, social distancing becomes uh, 
less useful. It would be just like we had not had any social distancing requirements in place. And so you mean if people start like gathering in in groups that are sufficiently big, that it just undoes all the hard work that everybody's doing to social distance, socially distance? I would say sufficiently big is one way to look at it. The other way is um, what we're learning from uh, countries like China, South Korea, what they were really able to effectively do is maintain social circles as small as possible. Um, They recommended that people stay within their own family units and that individual family units did not interact with each other. And so it's not necessarily the size of the group. It's the number of connections between connectivity. Exactly. And so even if, you know, let's say Stuart, my family, um, my family of two, it's just myself and my wife. If one of us goes out and connects with even a single individual person um, outside of our immediate group who then has contact with three other members in their own household, if one of those people in that household deviates from recommendations to stay within their home, you can see how those degrees of separation can exponentially uh, yeah. grow. No, I can't see that. But I guess my, my concern is that, right, you know, in two weeks, if we're still mm-hmm. doing social isolation, I just I just worry that people are not going to be able to do that regardless. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? That like, is there some time limit after which you worry that, you know, people are going to get cabin fever uh, and, and just, uh, you know, not revolt exactly, but start to deviate, as you put it? Yeah, it's a very uh, fair point. I think what we're seeing right now is that this is a stressful time for a lot of people, not only. Um, are we seeing an increase in COVID cases in the emergency department, but we're seeing an increase in people uh, coming in with mental health complaints. So um, complaints of worsening depression, complaints of suicidal thoughts, et cetera. And so I think this is really hitting us all where we're most vulnerable and that vulnerability is different um, for each of us. I think one of the things that we're seeing in Utah that we'll have to see how it plays out is we Uh, seem to have put restrictions in place a lot more rapidly than some other places in the country in relation to the increase in number of cases. And so I think we're probably developing cabin fever maybe a little bit more quickly than other people um, because we're not seeing the the relative increase in cases that you guys maybe are seeing around the Chicagoland area, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so people here are seeing less of a reason to social distance at the moment. And I think that becomes dangerous because then – you start loosening restrictions on yourself and your own family unit. And that's when there's the potential for surge there. Um, I think the answer to your question um, is doing, trying to find um, uh, those same opportunities for wellness in ways that are lower risk. Um, The lowest risk things that we can do is, um, you know, work out, exercise, experience the outdoors in our own backyards or even with own, within our own neighborhoods. So a several block radius of where we do right. live. Um, I say that's lowest risk because you are limiting the, um, the sphere of social contacts and going back to um, the, that interconnectivity that you and I just chatted about. It's really important to to limit those interactions. 
Um, I think that the further we do get out from these initial restrictions, we're going to have more deviations from those recommendations. And that's why being as strict as possible right now um, can actually limit the, um, the duration that we're experiencing this virus, which is critical to our own sanity and to actually making sure because cases drop off. Is that because right now is like a really critical period in the spread? And so if we have this, this concentrated effort now, it will hopefully mean, well, I mean, that's the flattening the curve idea, right? That, that, or that we won't have it for as long as we might otherwise? That's exactly correct. So I think you bring up two thoughts. Um, uh, the flattening the curve idea, it doesn't necessarily change the number of cases that we have of COVID, but it changes the number of cases at any one time, which is really important for us in the healthcare field. The more cases that we have at any one given time, the more difficult it is for us to adequately uh, treat and um, uh, protect ourselves as providers. So flattening the curve um, may mean that we're experiencing COVID for maybe even a longer period of time, but the intensity to, at any one moment is lower. Um, the, where we're at in the epidemic curve in the United States right now, we're starting to see the initial exponential growth of cases and social distancing is most important right now um, because we don't have uh, the ability to vaccinate um, we don't have herd immunity to this virus, and uh, our population at large has not experienced this virus yet. And so the number of people who are actually at risk um, for contracting the virus is its highest. And so the more that we can socially uh, distance right now, the, the greater the efficacy of those measures. So really what you're saying is this all comes down to trust. So it's like a big test of trust for everyone <laughs> to see if you trust everybody else. Like if you, and like you said, you and your wife, you decide to maybe only see both sets of parents and then like, that's your little bubble, but then you have to trust everybody to not go outside that bubble. Right. It's so true. I mean, I think to put it succinctly, social distancing isn't about us individuals or limiting um, the, the risk of us contracting it. It's about our society working as a single unit. And understandably, there are many points of potential breakdown in that. And so the more strict that each of us can be individually, um, the less that there's a potential lapse in that system. That makes sense. So, so listening to you, I think that uh, I hear you saying that, you know, you recognize that people might go stir crazy cabin fever, whatever, because we're not used to being cooped up and not used to being socially isolated in this way. And, and so you're recommending, you know, maybe uh, walks in your neighborhood versus going on like a super long hike or certainly on a mountain climb or something like that. Is that is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, Stuart. And, you know, that's for several reasons. I think one is um, limiting the interconnectedness of our units and our spheres right now. And you, you hit that perfectly. I think the second part is um, we're at a really interesting time. If you think about the time of the year that we're in, you know, we're places in the Northern Hemisphere are starting to get warmer. We would naturally see an increase in outdoor activity for most uh, populations or groups of people at this point. Interestingly, in the emergency department, we uh, we see a lot of this seasonality right about now and into the summer. We'll start to see more 
injuries related to outdoor activity, more broken bones, um, more motor vehicle accidents here in Utah. We start seeing a lot of ATV accidents, mountain bike accidents, climbing accidents, et cetera, because of that. Um, and so I think when you think about where you are getting your outdoor experience at the moment, it's really important to think about those additional uh, risks those additional risks are potentially overburdening emergency departments because of uh, other reasons to visit the ED. So this is something you've actually brought up two different times and it just had never occurred to me. So we just had, we had a podcast that I, if, if you haven't listened to, I encourage everybody listening to listen to uh, with Dr. Ron Hershow, who's an epidemiologist with the university of Illinois, at Chicago. And we talked a lot about the benefits of going outside and, and of getting exercise and things like that. And that's true. But, but you got to be careful in what you do, uh, not to basically take out somebody, right? Is the thing. Uh, and so you talked about in terms of getting doctors sick with your flu like symptoms, but also in terms of if you go out and get yourself injured, that's an ambulance, uh, that, you know, can't treat somebody with uh, COVID right there and a doctor that, or an ambulance that can't transport somebody and a doctor that can't treat somebody. Uh, and so I, I think that that's a, another factor, I guess, when you're thinking about choices of what to do that, that you need to think of. But that had never occurred to me. That's correct. I think, you know, we're everything that we should be thinking about right now in terms of our individual actions should be about decreasing risk. Accidents are called accidents because they're not planned for. And even the, even the most prepared amongst us, things can happen. And so we have to weigh the benefit of um, our outdoor experience at the moment against the risk of potentially involving um, a fire department or emergency um, uh, medical services provider like a paramedic or a search and rescue team, et cetera. Those are all people who are going to be critical when we're uh, responding to the peak of this crisis. I have two questions. So I'm a type one diabetic. So technically I fall under the immunocompromised, you know, area. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it true that it's more likely for people who are vulnerable to actually contract COVID-19 or is it just that you'll have more serious health consequences if you do contract it? I would say both things. Um, anything, you know, the, your, um, your type 1 diabetes is, is interesting from that standpoint because your immune system may have uh, less of an ability to uh, mount a sufficient response um, at the beginning of contracting um, a virus like COVID-19. And so um, it's true that you may be higher risk for contracting it um, one, and then two, uh, higher risk when you do get it because of your body's ability to um, sustain that immune response. And so we are cautioning people who um, fall on either side of that curve or either higher risk for contracting it because of their contacts, like us healthcare providers, um, or to people who have medical conditions, which make the virus more dangerous when they actually contract it. That's a great question. That's really good to know, because I know I'm part of a bunch of different Facebook groups that are specifically geared toward my disease, and I'm sure a lot of other people are for their diseases, too. And so this is something that's really been going around in those conversations is like, what's going on with us? Are we going to be okay? So thank you for that answer. And then the next question I had is, um, as someone with a background in epidemiology and medicine, how do you see this crisis ending? Like, when do you think 
we're all going to be okay and it'll be over and we can go outside. If, if, <laughs> if it ends. No, I, I'm watching this very closely, both from the nerdy epidemiologist side of things where, um, you know, this is both a scary and fascinating um, disease to watch. Um, but on the medical side, I think we're, um, watching it a little bit more anxiously because we realize that our ability to respond is limited. Um, I think watching Asia and Central Europe right now, I, I see that we're on the, the early part of the epidemic curve here in the United States. Um, a lot of countries have been very quick to pull the trigger on um, strict social distancing and uh, lockdown laws, um, and they, when are when those are enacted appropriately, are very efficacious. I think the thing that makes me a little more nervous here is, you know, we're a massive country in terms of land mass as well as population. We're segmented because a lot of our laws are. Um, uh, more heavily enforced at the state and local level. And we're seeing a little bit more of a disjointed response here in the U S right now. Um, I'm hopeful that when that once across the board our most restrictive measures are in place is that this will likely be um, a few months. Uh, what we're starting to see in China right now is that even when the curve is on uh, the, the back end when we're seeing cases decline and people recover, there still is the potential for small upticks. And so um, in response, I guess, more directly to your answer, I'm hopeful that this first initial response will likely be two to three months and that we only see small surges afterwards that are a little bit more easily manageable. Okay. Now, I know you're busy, but you said nerd. And so I have a nerd question for you. I apologize. <laughs> so you mentioned like our landmass is so big and our population size or whatever. So, you know, my favorite thing to do every day is to go and look at like all these graphs that are on social media or the Financial Times or wherever. Uh, and, and there's sort of two different ways of uh, uh, doing these graphs for like, you know, COVID cases in the United States. One is absolute number of cases. And you look at our curve compared to, you know, uh, South Korea, hopefully, or China or Italy, hopefully not. Um, but then the other way is doing it by capita, right? Per, you know, million people of population or something like that. Yeah. And so by capita, I feel like, you know, it is a better representation of like the density of, of where it is uh, versus just the sheer numbers, which can, uh, you know, of, of infections. Do you have a thought on like, is it better to, you know, graph this stuff by capita or is it better on the absolute number of cases in terms of being a better representation of kind of where we are in the threat to us? Yeah, I think the, the most easily digestible uh, piece of data for the population at large is just sheer numbers. But uh, so just numbers, proportions, simple rates. But I agree with you, Stuart. I don't think that gives the full picture. I would say that uh, per capita is probably a more accurate representation at this point. Um, some of the more interesting graphs uh, out there um, or ways to graphically represent this would be heat maps. And so you could easily overlay um, population data where you obviously have greater numbers of individuals and uh, in big city centers like New York City, Los Angeles, 
Seattle, Houston, Miami, Chicago, et cetera, um, and looking at the number of cases there. Another interesting piece that I think may start to come out as our ability to collect data around this becomes a little better. Um, for instance, if we're testing a larger number of the population, one of the more interesting things to see uh, would be the um, the rate of increase of cases in these places. And so um, I think if we're watching um, Johns Hopkins and the CDC and some of these other um, really reliable sources, some of that data may come out in, um, in yeah. a, a, a more useful way. Yeah. And I was thinking about that, and I, I don't want to get too bleak, but it seems to me like we're starting to see some more data around the number of deaths, which I think is, frankly, because of the testing situation we had, probably a more reliable thing to look at because the, as we increase the number of tests, of course, the number of cases are going to increase. And so it's uh, it's uh, not necessarily comparing like to like there. That's true. I think one interesting point for your listeners, um, there's been a lot of confusion about terminology in this outbreak. One important one that often is used interchangeably um, and incorrectly, case fatality rate versus mortality rate. So case fatality rate looks at the number of deaths over the number of infected persons, you can easily see how this is affected by our ability to test. Right now, we're thinking that there are many asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic individuals who have the disease but are not getting tested because of our algorithms. Um, the second is mortality rate. So this looks at the number of deaths attributed to a specific disease over the population at risk. And so these are very different numbers epidemiologically, but are often used interchangeably. Um, but you're exactly right to point out that a lot of our understanding about this is going to change as we're testing more people throughout the epidemic curve. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll put links to some of those uh, terms in the show notes, which you'll be able to find at uh, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash six. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Frank. And as a last thing, what kind of gives you hope in this situation? I think right now, knowing that a lot of this is um, is in our own hands gives me hope. I think we've seen this play out in war times, looking back at previous generations of Americans and, and others around the world that, you know, it, there are examples of us being able to band together and do what's under our own control to make a huge difference here. I think that um, we as healthcare providers are taking this seriously. Um, many people are using their individual social circles to get accurate information out there. And I'm seeing a lot of examples of people watching out for each other and taking care of neighbors. And I think the constellation of those things together really gives me hope. Well, Dr. Frank uh, Zadrovich, thank you so much for coming on to teach me about the Great Lakes. And uh, where can people find you on social media? So I would say I'm most regularly on Instagram at the moment. People can find me at Frank Zadrovich, so at my first and last name. I'm happy to reach out to people uh, when I'm not in the emergency department. <laughs> right. That could be more important. <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, Dr. Frank Zadrovich, thank you so much for uh, coming and talking with us about this and uh, stay safe out there. Excellent. Thank you. 
Well, I'm really glad we had him on. That's some uh, very interesting food for thought for me because coming from my background, you know, I think of like going outside as being unambiguously healthy uh, and and really important in these times of uh, where we're otherwise cooped up. And and I still think that to tell you the truth, but but there turns out there are broader considerations that are in play, right? Yeah. So I thought it was interesting that he was talking about. Um the idea of extra people going into the emergency room for non-COVID related illnesses, you know, they could potentially spread the illness still to doctors and nurses and take those people off the front lines. And so it's really important that, you know, we're all staying inside as much as possible or at least social distancing as much as possible to keep everybody safe and especially the medical experts that need to be in the hospitals. Yeah, and the injury part of it was something I hadn't thought about either. The other day, uh, it was snowing here in West Lafayette because it snows in March in West Lafayette, Indiana, um, in late March, very late March. But uh, And so I went with my uh, one-year-old daughter, and we were going to go on a bike ride like through the snow. Um, and as we were like getting mounted up, I was like, wait a minute. Do we want to wind up in the hospital right now? Um, and the answer is no, incidentally. But but so it's that same idea. It's like, you know, think about the doctors and, and what their needs are, too, and don't take them out. And so even if things are maybe lower risk, there's still some risk associated with it, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that was interesting to think about. So uh, I don't know, listener. I mean, you have to make your own choices, right? Of course, we would never recommend that you uh, violate shelter-in-place policies because you shouldn't. Those are there for an important reason. But for those of you who aren't in there, there's a lot to think about when you're making choices. And so I hope with this episode, combined with episode number five with Dr. Ron Hershaw, we've given you kind of the context that you need to make an informed choice. Uh, I know it gives me a lot to think about. Yeah, same here. All right, Hope. Well, uh, people should find us on social media. They should find the podcast uh, at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com. Uh, and um, you can follow us on Twitter at uh, Teach Great Lakes. And you can follow Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And we will share this podcast episode um, at I-L-I-N-C Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah. And uh, thanks again for tuning in. And like I said before, I think we'll be releasing a few episodes in March because it's something that we can do from home, or at least I thought we could prior to the audio issues we had today. Uh, Regardless, stay safe out there and thanks for listening. Yeah, stay safe. Wash your hands. (laughs) 